Welcome to Renovate, the young adult ministry of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We are for all young adults. Whether you're far from God or walking close to Him, we believe that our God fully knows us and fully loves us. So instead of leaving us as He finds us, He is constantly and graciously renovating our lives so we can look more like Him. Enjoy this week's message. Amen. Praise God. How are you guys tonight? Good, good, um, good. Uh, Hey, I am, uh, I love this. (laughs) I love this. Um, We, uh, tonight, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, I don't know a lot of you, but I'm glad you're here. And the Holy Spirit in me loves you, even though I don't know who you are or know your name. Um, I, I really hope, and, and just like Casey prayed, man, I hope that you, and like Brooke, I, welcomed so well. I hope you feel welcome in this place. I really do. Uh, what's going to happen tonight and what's about to happen in this sermon, let me just kind of preview where we're going. Um, we're going to look at one really sweet passage of Scripture. We're going to look at 11 verses in the Gospel of John, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to uh, unpack and explain some things that are happening in those, Uh, and then I'm going to ask the question, what does that mean for us? And then I'm going to apply that to our life uh, in a couple of ways, in in how that applies to us individually, and then I'm going to talk about how that applies to us who are believers in this room as we represent Christ. Now, we're in this series um, called Church People. And the whole idea behind this series called Church People, Josh kicked it off last week. If you didn't hear uh, Josh's sermon, go check it out on the podcast. It it was uh, an incredible look at who Jesus is and how Jesus sets the model for how we who represent Jesus should look. Uh, And this idea last week of should our lives look repressed, you know, and boring and dull, and it's all about what we can't do, or should we have lives that are marked by this freedom that comes with Christ? Uh, and so tonight, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, man, as church people, what should define our life? What should our posture be? And specifically in the context of the passage we're going to study tonight, we're going to look at this, uh, this comparison, this balance uh, between condemnation and compassion, and how we justify those two things, uh, specifically as, as people who may be in this room are following Christ and trying to represent Christ well. And let me say at the, at the beginning of this, if you are not in that camp and if you are not there yet and you're not walking with Christ and you do not claim Christ, I love that you're here. You are welcome here. Uh, we talk about it a lot, uh, this idea that you can belong before you have to believe everything we believe and you might disagree with where we are, but I love that you're here and I'm praying for you. We as a staff are praying for you. And, uh, and in some ways, I hope that this is not just a blessing for you to see who Christ is, Um, But also maybe be a season of healing as you maybe see some of the ways that maybe the church has hurt you in the past and just see some acknowledgement that that's on us. uh, That's on us. And we as the church at times misrepresent who Jesus is. uh, But would that not would that not discourage us to the point of not following who he really is? So that's my hope, and that's where we're going. And um, and we're just going to jump into it because it's important Uh, how we uh, set this tone for ourselves and how we specifically in the context of church people say, how do we represent him? Is we have to look and ask the question of how do we love those around us, right? How are we loving to those around us? In order to do that, we have to look at how we are loved. And in order to do that, we have to look at Jesus. Why? Why do we have to look at Jesus? Here's what what I believe about Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ 
a Jewish carpenter 2,000 years ago who I believe was God incarnate. He is the one who sets my value. He is the one who sets my value. He is the one who, uh, who I look to. Here's what we believe about Jesus, that he is authoritative, that he is preeminent, that Jesus was there a part of the triune God before the foundations of the world, and that Jesus, this man who was God with flesh on, came and lived 2,000 years ago, and his authoritative life changed everything. And so when we say, hey, we need to look at how we're supposed to love people, and in order to do that, we need to see how we're loved. In order to do that, we need to look at Jesus. I think that's a really easy sentiment to kind of nod your head to and be like, of course, yeah, you know, we're in a church thing. Of course, we need to look at Jesus. But I, I think we can skip over that and nod our head too quickly and not slow down and realize this is all about Jesus. If we leave here, if you leave here tonight and you feel encouraged and you feel better about yourself, which I, I hope if you listen, you will. I think tonight's, I think the passage that we're talking about is insanely encouraging. Man, it is crazy encouraging. But if you walk out of here and you just think, man, I'm so encouraged. I'm encouraged by just positivity. I'm encouraged by just, um, you know, ambiguous truth. I'm encouraged that by the universe, I'm encouraged by anything other than Jesus, then we are, we are landing our encouragement in something that is not solid and not authoritative. Um, I spend a lot of time hearing people's stories and getting coffee and getting breakfast and getting a beer and getting lunch with people and hearing their stories. Um, and a lot of times it's just busy and we don't get there. But there's a lot of times where we tell our stories and we tell a story of, you know, man, here's how my life was going. And in Christianity, we love to call that sharing your testimony, right? Because we put weird words on, on all the things we say. And so it's like, man, how's your testimony? How's your heart? And so, you know, we hear, you know, we hear people's testimony. And, and so often, man, we fall into this trap of thinking, man, my life was going this way. But then, you know, I really got plugged into this ministry. And man, I just feel, I got community and I got some friends and I'm really making better choices. I'm turned around. And if Jesus isn't in there, if Jesus isn't the authoritative foundational point of my turn or of trans transformation in my life or of change or a realization that it is not about community, it is not about religion, it is not about church, but it is about I found Christ and I know him and I've surrendered my life to him. He is what is authoritative. Jesus sets our value, not people, not church, not ministries, not circumstances, not success, Christ Jesus does that. And so let's look at him tonight. In John chapter 8, I'm going to read this passage, this story of Jesus. We're going to look at this authoritative Christ. We're going to explain it. I'm going to explain it. And we're going to talk about what, what does this mean for us. And then we're just going to keep worshiping. John chapter 8, verse 1. And we'll put it up on the screen if that's easiest for you too. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, 
beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before her. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I love this story. Let me explain a little bit what's happening here. Jesus shows up. He's teaching. He, is, he is, has a huge following. There's tension in the culture at this time because here you've got religious leaders who have seen Jesus as a threat. He is preaching a gospel that they are, that is, that they are scared of and they are scared of losing control of, of the people who they are leading. And so they're trying to trap him. And so they go and they find a woman and they bring her before Christ. And it says they caught her in the act of adultery, which just right off the bat, just to make some observations here, um, man, the motivation behind these men, I think we can, we can deduce from this passage, uh, they went and found this woman caught in the act of adultery. So here you have a woman caught in the act of adultery, so probably half naked, covered in shame, dragged to Jesus, they didn't bring a man, right? If she was caught in adultery, there, there would have been somebody else that, that would have also been guilty, but they just, they grabbed this woman and brought her before Jesus to test him, to see what is he gonna do? What is he gonna do? Because we're gonna give him a lose-lose situation to trap Jesus. He tells people this line, and maybe you've heard it before, he who's out sin may cast the first stone. One by one, they drop their stones where are your condemners? They're not here. I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. It's this radical picture of compassion. They're trying to trap him because in this time, the law was, the law was, if you were following Christ, the holiness of God, you knew, man, to commit adultery is death. You knew that it would be wrong to commit adultery. You knew that it was absolutely against God's will. And here is somebody who is saying he is the way, the truth, and the light, and he is representing the voice of God, and he is God. And, and so what are you going to do? Are you going to invalidate? Are you going to throw away God's law? Are you going to spit on the law of Moses and say, ah, oh, no, no big deal? Or are you going to stone her, which then would have gotten him in trouble with the Romans because you wouldn't have been allowed to to kill someone without the Roman government approving it. And so what are you going to do? We're going to trap Jesus. We're going to put him in this really, really hard place and trap him. And his answer is this amazingly compassionate answer. Um, he, he, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on this. And there's, uh, I, I've read about half a dozen different explanations of the drawing in the sand. And some people say that he's writing out uh, the the you know, the, the law of God on the sand. Some people say he's writing on the sand potentially to draw attention away from this woman of shame. There's all kinds of theories. Um, but we know what his response is, is compassion and grace. We know that his response is, I'm gonna meet her where she's at and I'm gonna not condemn her for the sin. Her accusers walk away because they know they're not worthy to cast any stones. But we know from Scripture Jesus is worthy. He is without sin. He is without blemish. What's this mean for us? What does this mean for us? This story, how, what is the, how, how does this affect us? What's the significance of this? Because the significance of great is great. This passage, this authoritative passage, it shows us the balance. It shows us the balance between holiness 
and grace. And there's a tension there. There is a tension there. Oftentimes, if, if we aren't thinking properly, there is a, an imbalance or a tension. Or how do we step into this idea of holiness and grace? Holiness, holiness being the idea that this law, this, this book, what God has said is right, how we ought to live, how we ought to walk, how we ought to follow him, how we ought to obey him, to represent him, to be holy before him. He calls his people to be holy And we have this command in Scripture all throughout Old and New Testament that our God says, man, be holy. Be holy and represent me. Follow me. Obey me. Obey my commandments. Obey my law. So we have this this side of of the tension, and then we have this other tension of, man, we got a God who is gracious. And we got a God who looks at our lack of holiness, and, and by grace, he gives us what we don't deserve and mercy He doesn't give us what we do deserve, which would be penalty for our lack of holiness, penalty for our mistakes, penalty for our sin. And so there's this tension between holiness and grace. And these 11 verses, I think, as as good as anything else, show us, man, what is the balance between these, these two things? Holiness, how we ought to live, what we should be doing, and the grace that we see all throughout the Old and New Testament. What is the balance? How do we fit these two seemingly opposite things together in the Christian life? Jesus does this. He leads with grace. He leads with grace. And so often, man, when we think about how we balance this, and even just picking on myself, how I balance this, so often, I'm so quick to judge and to categorize people. My first instinct, unfortunately, at times, growing up in the church and being a church person for such a long time, my first instinct so often is I see their sin, and I'm going to put them in a compartment. I'm going to put them in a category of their sin, especially if their sin struggle is something that is unique to me. It's something that I've already had victory over, I don't struggle with, but this person does. And it's so easy for us to lead with that. And it's so easy for us as a church to do that and lead under the guise and smokescreen of, well, this is holiness. But instead, what we're doing is we're leading with this idea of, here's your sin and there's condemnation for your sin. There's consequences for your sin and we're gonna put you in that category. Jesus shows us this balance between holiness and grace. And here is the big idea of this entire passage. To the humble, grace always covers condemnation. Listen to me. (laughs) To the humble, grace always covers condemnation. Jesus models this so perfectly here. You have a broken, humbled woman, half naked in the dirt before Jesus Christ, teaching an audience of people how to live a holy life and and teaching them the law and teaching them godliness. And then here comes these men who want to accuse her and want to see, is Jesus going to hold her accountable for her sin? She's wrong. She's in the wrong. She made mistakes. She's busted in it. And she's guilty. And yet Jesus protects her. He reaches into her mess and offers her grace not condemnation. That's what he offers her. Grace, not condemnation. We talk about it a lot in the welcome. We sing about it. We preach about it. I think it can easily become white noise. We are a room of broken people. We are a room of broken people. 
we are sinful, we have sinful tendencies, we make mistakes, uh, we wander, we choose to worship just with our lives, we worship and find our satisfaction chasing things that are not worthy of our worship as opposed to the one who is truly worthy, Christ Jesus. And yet, what does God offer us? He offers us grace. He leads with this grace and not condemnation. And this, that changes everything. How you interact with others, if you are in Christ, if you, if you are a follower of Christ and represent Christ and you claim 2 Corinthians 5 that you have been reconciled and now given this ministry of reconciliation and you're now an ambassador of Christ, this changes how we represent him as ambassadors. It should change how we represent him. It should change how we interact with our own sin. And instead of leading with what people have done wrong and their sin, we are modeled and taught and shown through scripture, we've got to lead with grace. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. If you're in this room and you feel condemnation, but you are in Christ, it says there is no condemnation. Man, if you're in this room and you say you're an ambassador with Christ, but you take people and you put them in categories based on their sin, you're not representing Christ the way he's called us to. There's a problem with that. There should be a tension there in our hearts. Neither do I condemn you is what Christ says. Compassion over condemnation. Lead with compassion over condemnation. Neither do I condemn you. And then let's finish the verse. Go and from now on sin no more. Lead with compassion. But then we finish the verse and we see Jesus from this place of compassion, this place of grace, this place of protecting a guilty woman, then gives her this command, this last word, go and sin no more. And that's also really, really important to hold on to. This is important. God's compassion and love is not erasing the existence of sin. It's erasing the power and death of sin. Let me say that again. God's compassion and love is not erasing the fact that there is sin, that sin exists, and saying, hey, sin isn't a thing anymore. His compassion and love is erasing the effects and the death that sin creates in those who follow Christ. It's setting us free. It's bringing healing from something that still very much exists. He doesn't say, hey, the law doesn't apply anymore. He doesn't say, hey, it's okay. Adultery is now fine. I don't condemn you because adultery is fine now, and I'm rewriting the rules. In fact, in Matthew 5, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Right? He lived this perfect life so that he might be the perfect sacrifice so that we might all be able to approach a holy God only through him because we can't do it ourselves because we, we haven't lived the perfect life. So he doesn't erase sin. He just erases the weight of sin for those who are in Christ. He erases the condemnation for sin for those who are in Christ. But I really want to urge you to, yes, walk out of here with, I need to lead with compassion, but also let's not make the good-hearted mistake that our compassion doesn't come from telling people their sin is not there. We don't make the mistake, a very well-intentioned mistake of saying, hey, I want to be compassionate, so I'm going to just tell them they don't have sin. 
I'm just going to tell them that everything is fine. It would be, if I was an oncologist, if I was uh, an oncologist and I was a doctor who just studied cancer and had an office where people came in and we did lab results and I had to reveal the news to them, it would be joyous, honestly. The temporary and immediate impact of me being able to tell every patient I came in, let me show you the report and put up the MRI results and put up the, the scan and see this mass, see this lump of cells here, you're fine. You're fine. That's not cancer. You're great. People would leave my office. People would go about their next few days, their next few weeks, maybe the next year or so, depending on the kind of cancer, and they would feel so supported by me. Hey, you're good. That, that mass, it looks like it's growing, doctor. Nope, you're fine. You're fine. It's okay. It's not a big deal. You're great. Keep it up. That's just part of how you were born. That's just part of it. Don't worry about it. Just keep it up. They, their quality of life in the short term would no doubt improve, right? Like the quality of life that me as a doctor would want to give them and the immediate impact of that would be greatly improved. They're happy. They're eating with their family. Everything's great. I don't have cancer. The reality though is if they did have cancer, that would be an incredibly unloving thing to do. It would be so much harder, yet also simultaneously so much more loving if I'm able to sit down and say, this mass is cancer. This is going to be hard. It is buried in you. It's going to take surgery. It is going to be a long road. It is going to be exhausting. You're going to want to give up. You're going to want to not do the things that kill this cancer. This is going to be so much harder. This is going to be expensive. It's going to be a toll on your entire family. It's going to create division. It's going to create stress in your relationships. It's going to create stress in your life beyond anything you've ever experienced. It's going to be physically, emotionally painful and draining. That, people are going to leave my office with their heads hung low. They're going to go get in the car and cry with their spouse. Sadness is going to overwhelm them. In the short term, in the immediate, that is going to be hard and heavy. But it's going to be loving if it's true. It's going to be really, really loving if it's true. <clears throat> I, when I was, uh, when I was, since I was, since I hit puberty, I have struggled and, and specifically, when I first hit puberty, man, my struggles immediately went to lust. Um, man, I, I, my eyes would wander. Um, I remember, this was when I was in high school, because I could drive. And I remember I actually, um, I'm not proud of this at all. This is not a glorification uh, of, of my high school experiences or my mistakes. Uh, but I remember driving to a gas station. It was pretty far from my house. And I remember, I, this was kind of before I had kind of shows my age, before I had much access to the internet or really knew how to navigate that thing, uh, I think I was 16 at the time, and I bought a pornographic magazine at a gas station. Because as a 16-year-old, man, my flesh wanted that. I wanted that. I was drawn to that. I, I, my flesh wanted, I wanted that. All the people around me wanted that. They talked about it. I didn't want to be left out of that. There was a, there was a, there was, I was born with this propensity this curiosity, and so bought a pornographic magazine. Then throughout my life, man, pornography on the internet has been a battle. 
It's been, a, it's been a battle. It's been this thing that's been this cancerous thing that's robbed me of life. I remember, I remember after I'd been married for a year, driving with my wife and talking about, hey, sweetheart, I've got some filters on our computer so that, you know, I'm accountable to all that I see. So if I'm on the internet and my flesh and my eyes and my heart start to want to wander into some of these things that were not producing life and joy, right? Like they, they, were, they were these things that were killing me. And they were things that everyone else was doing and everyone else was looking at and all my other friends, they would talk about it and joke about it and it wasn't a big deal. But there was this conviction, if I can use that word, this thing inside me that said, man, there's something empty about this. Like there's something lacking in this. There's something that doesn't match, I think, the holiness that I'm supposed to. And I remember talking to my wife uh, about it and, and, and really struggling through like, hey, this is, a, this is something that I've got to remain accountable for. And this is something that man, shamefully, embarrassedly, like, oh, man, why would I struggle with that? I shouldn't struggle with that. And I remember specifically early in our marriage having to confess at times and, and bring that stuff up and say, this is, like, this is sin. This is stuff that God doesn't want in my life, and it's here, and has nothing to do with my wife, and has everything to do with my flesh and my heart. And I, I remember moments where my wife just meeting me with grace and compassion, just meeting me there and saying how she still loves me, and meeting me there and walking in seasons and supporting accountability with other men because for me, that's cancer in my life. And praise God that there's victory and there can be victory for that. And God allows there to be freedom and victory for that. But for me, it's still something that I don't trust myself around. And it's still something that I have to be real weary of and cautious of because I know I have this propensity because I got this flesh and I just was born with this thing, man. And, and it just has always kind of been there. And and sometimes I feed it and it just grows and grows and it is this cancer. And yet, that's this thing that if the world around me would have just said, you know, when, when, my, when I confessed to my dad when I was a 14-year-old boy, if he would have said, yeah, all 14 boys do that, all, every, every kid does that and that's just a part of growing up. And, you know, I think that there's a lot of dads that say that and I think they're well-intentioned in certain ways. But man, that... For me, the conviction is there for that. But I didn't have that kind of dad. I didn't have that kind of wife. Somebody that loved me enough to say, yeah, let's walk through that. But with such compassion and such grace. What is that sin for you? What is that in your life? And, and are we leading and modeling with compassion? Do we love people enough to lead with compassion, but then also hold fast to true, uh, truth? What? What do I want to do with this? Here's, here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to apply this um, to your life. Two points. Two, two application points for two different people. And then we're gonna, we are going to respond in worship uh, for the rest of this evening. So two application points for two different camps of people. Two takeaways for two different camps. The first camp of people is this. Um, and this is what I hope that you walk away from. From this story, from this big idea that, that compassion is always going to cover condemnation. That I hope that that first camp is Christ followers. So people in this room who say, yep, I'm a Christ follower and I'm an ambassador. What do I do with this? A couple of things. One, you lead with compassion. 
You lead with compassion. You walk out of here, you see how Jesus loved, Jesus our authority, and you lead with compassion. You don't throw stones that you're not worthy to throw because let me tell you, you are not worthy to throw those stones. You lead with compassion. Let me give a couple of examples of what that might look like. You know somebody who's pro-choice and you're pro-life and you meet and are interacting with somebody that's pro-choice. Do you lead with compassion when you meet that person? Like, are you leading with compassion or are you leading with, wait a second, right? Do you lead with compassion? Do you meet them where they're at? You don't know their story. You don't know what they've been through. You don't, but, but wait a second, that's a big deal, Ben. Hold on, hold on. Don't use God's holiness to be a smokescreen for your conservative political agenda. Don't. Don't do that. Look, I'm pro-life, conservative, yay, all right, awesome, good. I'm great with that. But don't use God's holiness as a smokescreen to say, to beat people up and say it's about holiness. If your posture isn't actually the posture that Christ has. And, if, and that is a radically important issue to me. And if you believe, man, I think the fact that, that we might have a government that allows life to be taken before a, a baby's even born, I, I can't handle that. And that is an abomination. And I hate that. You know who also would hate that? Jesus. Jesus would absolutely and does absolutely hate that. You know what else Jesus hates? Adultery. He absolutely hates adultery. He hates it. It is, it is an abomination to what he has designed marriage to be and this incredible gift of sex that he has built and designed for pleasure in a marriage covenant and adultery just is, a, is an abomination to that. He hates that. What was Jesus' posture before a woman caught in adultery? It was compassion. It was, it was compassion. He met her where she was at. He didn't condemn her. Christ doesn't like those things. Our God is holy, yes, but he leads with compassion. Are you leading with compassion? Don't use God's holiness as a smokescreen for your bigotry also, okay? I love you, but if, let me give you my second example. If you have friends that are openly gay, let me back up. I don't think enough of us have friends that are openly gay who are church people. And why? Like, why not? Like, why don't we have more friends who are openly gay? Like, what is, what is our posture like? That's sad. That should be convicting to us. That are we loving people and meeting them where they're at and being compassionate and I think so often, I hate to say this because this might push some buttons, but sucks to suck. So often, we mask our bigotry in, well, man, that's what the Bible says. We mask our political agenda in, this is what the Bible said. Man, what is the posture of Christ? If it's not the posture of Christ, I don't care if you've got the right argument from Scripture. It's not representing Christ well. And if you have a hard time being around somebody who's openly gay, that, that is an issue of compassion with you. Love people well, everybody. Don't categorize people, put them in camps because of different life, because of different sin, because of different aspects of their life, because of different beliefs. Lead with compassion. 
lead with compassion, and then yes, hold fast to what is true. I am radically, it is radically important, pro-life, I'm radically, it's radically important to me, right? It's an important issue, but I've got to lead with compassion. But yes, I still hold fast to what is true at the same time. Now, how do I do that? How do I get to that place? How do I get to the place of loving somebody well who's, who's maybe in sin, it's easy for Jesus because this woman was broken and caught and busted and humble. But man, what about my friend who doesn't feel any conviction? They're not worried about it. They're living their lifestyle. What about them? Shouldn't I maybe make them feel bad? That doesn't seem to be how Christ approaches it. Earn it. Earn it. Love them well. Love them well. And then, yeah, if they say, man, do you think my lifestyle is sin? Say, like, yeah, I, I do just like my sin. I don't throw stones at you. Brother, I don't throw stones at you, sister, because, man, I know my sin. And, man, I'm working on this stuff, and it's nasty, and it's embarrassing, and I'm having to walk with my wife through stuff, and I've got to get accountability and stuff. And, yeah, man, I, I do see that as sin, just like I see my stuff as sin. Earn that conversation with people, church. Earn that conversation with people. Lead with compassion. But, yes, hold fast to what is true. Don't think it's loving to just say, nope, it's not cancer. Nope, it's not sin. Nope, it's not going to rob you of life. Man, choose the hard path, but choose the compassionate path. It is a marathon and it's way tougher. Second camp. Second camp, two applications for you guys. And then we will respond in sweet worship, hopefully. Um, genuine worship for us. To the person in this room who is in this room or listening to this podcast and is just hurt. You're hurt. Maybe you feel the weight of your sin. Maybe you feel like this woman that's been dragged before Christ, busted, half naked. You got shame. You got guilt and genuine guilt. Like, you disobeyed. You didn't walk the way he called you to walk. You haven't been walking the way he called you to walk. You feel hurt. You've, you feel lonely. You feel broken by that. Two things for you. One, there is no condemnation in Christ. Do you believe that? I don't care what you struggle with. I don't care how far you've wandered. Man, Jesus met this woman in her brokenness and he protected her. He hates adultery. Yet he said, man, I don't condemn you. There's no condemnation for Christ, in Christ. Man, if you are in Christ, then you have a Savior who says, I love you. I love you. You're forgiven. My grace is more powerful than your sin. I don't want you to stay buried in your shame. I want you back with me. I don't want to leave you there. And if you feel like, but man, that is such a marathon because I have wandered so far. It's not. It's tonight. It's tonight you get to say, all right, tonight I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, if I'm in Christ, I'm going to believe the truth that there is no condemnation for me. I'm going to walk in that freedom. And if you're not in Christ, man, maybe you've done the religious thing. Maybe you've, you've kind of tinkered with it, but man, you realize, man, I don't, knowing Jesus Christ is not a turning point in my testimony. You know, I'm starting to make better decisions or whatever, but man, then tonight is the night where you say, man, I want to surrender to that Savior, that Christ, so that I might experience what it's like to be set free and be made new and be forgiven 
for no matter how far I've gone, no matter how far you have gone, that's my application for you. If you feel burdened and weary, I don't condemn you, he says. He has compassion on you. Second thing, go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. He's got something better for you. He's got something better for you. You are loved right where you are now, forgiven if you're in Christ right where you are now. But now go and sin no more. And if that seems impossible, then, man, you are not alone. Come get connected to us. There are other sinners who are trying to walk out God's gracious freedom in their life. Man, get in a home group, talk to Brooke or myself or whoever and say, man, I need to walk with other people because this is hard. And man, be vulnerable and say, man, here's my crap that Christ has forgiven me and let them have the posture of compassion to you as well. Go and sin no more and you don't have to do that alone. And let me pray for you and then let's worship. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you that you are a God who loves us and you love us so perfectly. God, we need to not just listen to this message. We need to hear this message from you. For my brothers and sisters that are in this room who in their souls feel like they are hanging their heads low, discouraged, feel so far from you, out there in Christ with tonight, man, would you open up the floodgates this evening, the floodgates of just God's grace in their life. And that from that kindness that we experience, that yeah, that will then lead us to repentance. That'll lead us from trying to kill some of this cancer that plagues us. And God, would you make us a community that leads with compassion, God? No matter what it is, Lord, would we lead with compassion? Would we not water down truth? Would we not mistake compassion for just erasing a category of sin? But God, would our posture be compassion? Because that is your posture towards us. You have found us where we don't belong far off. And you have adopted us. And even when we try to run, you won't let us go. And so tonight, I know there are people in this room who need you to just grab them and pull them back. That'd be a work of your spirit in this room tonight. All for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, to be the woman caught in adultery, the woman who had her darkest sin exposed in a very public way, and then she was laid at the feet of Jesus with people screaming, stone her, condemn her. I can only imagine how isolating that must have felt. I can only imagine the shame and the condemnation that she felt from herself and from others around her. But then Jesus, in his infinite grace, chooses to be compassionate instead. He chooses to look down on her in her darkest moment and choose mercy and choose love and choose to not hold this against her, but instead to say, you are loved, my child, get up, go and sin no more. And in that, he calls her to something better. His compassion frees her from the shame that she's been caught in. And then he calls her to walk away from it and to spend all of her effort, 
all of her time focusing on the grace and compassion that he offers because it frees us from being trapped in this place of shame, sin, and condemnation. And so as Christians, may we follow the example that Jesus set before us. May we be a people who are quick to show compassion instead of condemnation. When we fall, when we sin, when we stumble, may we have people around us who are compassionate and who are loving and caring to pick us back up, to love us well, rather than to beat us down and condemn us. And may we be those people in turn. When our friends, when our family, when anyone around us falls short, may we be the voice of compassion because Jesus was that voice of compassion for us first. And so if you're someone who knows that compassion of Jesus and needs help learning what that looks like in your own life, or if you've never experienced that compassion of Jesus in your own life, we are so glad that you're listening. And it's not an accident that you're here. And we encourage you to reach out to us at renovateftw.org or on social media at renovateftw. And we would love to get a cup of coffee with you or just sit down and talk with you about what that love of our Savior Jesus Christ looks like. We hope this has been a blessing to you and we'll see you again next week.